Hoffman saying, you know, it's interesting that um, the average demon believes more about Jesus and has more respect for Jesus than you do. And those demons are never going to make it into heaven. So what makes you think that you're ever going to get into heaven with that kind of belief? Probably wasn't the most sensitive approach to evangelism. But it's really interesting that in that moment, just by God's grace, uh, he was confronted with his own hardness of heart. And in that moment, he, he, he uh, faced that. He turned to Christ. And uh, I'm remembering this story because I talked to him recently. And uh, there, there is a genuine, flourishing, uh, changing faith. And Sandy really camped on this idea last time that it's, it's not about accepting certain facts. It's not just about agreeing that Jesus existed and is a part of history it takes more than that. It takes a heart that is yielded wholly to him. It's, it, it's a, a desire to have your life conformed by his truth. And uh, yes, the demons believe and they shudder. They have respect for Jesus. What, what difference uh, does your belief and a demon's belief, uh, how does that line up one with the other? And I think Sandy was right that here in Memphis, Tennessee, and probably right here in the Amen Bible study, there are plenty of men who have been around the church for a long time. And again, they, they know the facts, they know the answers, they just don't know what the questions are. And, and I'll just tell you, if, if, uh, if that's you, and you're not confident that uh, you've really worked out that issue, if you're not seeing genuine spiritual fruit growing out of your life, I would urge you not to put that on the back burner, but to put that on the front burner. I mean, isn't it true as men, we, we care, carry around with us a, uh, a to-do list of things that we've got to get to. And, you know, common things like, you know, I've got to rotate my tires. Or I've got to diversify my, my stock funds. Or I get, I've got to get a checkup. Or I've got to, you know, do something else for, for my wife so she'll, uh, she'll stop bugging me. Whatever it is, I need to spend more time with my, with my family. And we just kind of carry these around. I, I need to get to those sometime. Not this. This absolutely has to be a front burner issue in your life and mine. Do, in my life, am I demonstrating evidence that there's genuine faith in me? Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians 13, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And maybe, maybe it's a conversation with a trusted friend. Maybe it's a conversation with a pastor or a counselor or even somebody at your table just to make sure that not, not a day goes by, not another day goes by until you have a determined that you really have settled that issue of genuine faith in your own life. That's, that's kind of where we've been this morning. We're going to turn the corner and we're going to look at the rest of chapter 1. This is verse 12. To 21, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna see uh, what Peter has to say about our memories and and why they're important. And uh, we're gonna look at this uh, text really three three different paragraphs in this text. We're gonna look at them through this basic lens or grid. What is Peter saying? Why does it matter? And how do I apply that to my own life? So let's read this text. This is a uh, uh, 
rich with content, and I've been praying uh, that God would just open up our minds to grasp this and understand it. Now, verse 12, Peter says, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly uh, established in them, firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put, put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. Verse 19. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter begins, and this is what he says first, I want you to hold on to what you have learned. Hold on to what you have learned. He says, verse 12, I will always remind you of these things. might be helpful to know that this uh, word remind, refresh, remember, appears um, over 300 times in the Bible. And you've got to ask the question, why, why would there be that kind of uh, repetition, that kind of emphasis uh, about the importance of our minds, importance of remembering? I'll tell you, this is just a genius interpretation. I think we're told to remember a whole lot because we're all prone to forget. We have, we have uh, a lot of data, a lot of things going on in our minds. And I'll maybe just take a a little poll, a little mass confession this morning, and I'll ask everybody to, uh, to take part in this. If you've ever in conversation met, met somebody and then 30 seconds later forgot what their name was, or your wife sends you to the store with a list of things and you're, you're rather impatient and you don't want to write it down, she says, you better write this down. No, I'm not going to write it down. I can remember and then you get your schnooks and realize you have no idea what you were supposed to bring home. Uh, ever leave the church and forget where you parked your car? Ever put your keys down and haven't been able to find them in order to, to leave for an important meeting? Uh, ever forgotten a birthday? Ever forgotten your kid's name? Ever forgotten an anniversary? How many of us this morning would say, you know what? Uh, I tend to forget a lot of stuff in my life. Just raise your hand. How many of you forgot the question? Yeah. We're amazingly forget the pe forgetful people. 
And according to Scripture, according to Scripture, we have an amazing capacity to forget that which is most important, uh, to forget which is to forget God. The capacity of the human soul to forget the God who made us and loved us is uh, hard to even comprehend. We see this uh, really in the early pages of the Bible. God, uh, God hears the cries of his people in Israel. And his heart is for them. God raises up Moses and sends Moses and uh, sort of equips Moses uh, with this miracle staff and with uh, these plagues in, in his back pocket that he can use. And God softens Pharaoh's heart. And God leads the nation of Israel out of Egypt toward the promised land, allows them to cross through the Red Sea on dry ground. All these amazing things. And then we're told, you see this text, uh, Psalm 106, beginning with verse 9. God rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe, from the hand of the enemy. He redeemed them. Then they believed his promises and sang praise to his name. And then they all lived happily ever after. That's not how it goes, is it? But it says, but soon they forgot what he had done. And when it says they forgot, it's not the idea, oh, you know, oops, I forgot about God. They forgot God, meaning uh, they forgot that God even existed. They forgot that God was connected to them at all in relationship. This is Peter's fear. His fear is that at this tent, he says, my body... That after this ten, after my body is gone, after I'm dead, and I'm taken up into heaven, my fear is that you spiritual refugees that I'm riding and trying to pastor, my fear is that you are going to forget about God. You're going to forget about those things that are most important. That the devil, who Peter describes in his first letter, First Peter uh, five eight, the devil who is uh, prowling around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour, that that devil, that prowling lion, will end up devouring them. So Peter writes to remind them of God's eternal truth, writes to remind them to hold on to those things that they have learned. He says, I want to remind you. Secondly, verse 13, he says, I, I want to refresh your memory. I think it's right to refresh your memory. The word refresh, I think, is probably better translated to stir up in you. And the imagery there is the image of somebody uh, putting the ingredients together to make, to make a meal, to make bread. And you mix it all together and, and you stir it up. That's the imagery. Peter says we need our memories stirred up. We need them refreshed because all the input, all the data, all the stuff that's coming into our minds 24-7 has a tendency to distract us so that we get confused about things. It's interesting. Um, somewhere on Highland yesterday morning, there was a transformer that got blown. So from whatever time to probably about 10, 10, 10 maybe 10, 15, yesterday morning, all the power was out at the church and PDS, our boys' school. And it's amazing isn't it, how 
how um, incapacitated people become when they're not able to use things like their computer or phone or, you know, for those who don't have a, a window in their office to actually be able to see. You know, Peter is writing in a, in a time where there are no blackberries to Google answers and to find out from uh, the uh, Memphis Light, Gas, and Water, hey, when's this all going to be up? He, he's writing at a time where there were obviously no electronics, no, um, no, no uh, distractions like the kind we have today. And yet, all the way back then, he's concerned that our minds can get distracted and lured away from those things that are most valuable. It happens to all of us. Uh, happens to people who are new to the study of the Bible. I, I got this. This is some information that kids gave about the content of the Bible. And just a reminder that things can kind of get twisted and turned around. One kid wrote, The greatest miracle in the Bible is when Joshua told his son to stand still, and he obeyed him. The seventh commandment is, Thou shalt not admit adultery. This one may get me into a little trouble. The Jewish people in the Bible were proud. And throughout history, they had trouble with, with unsympathetic genitals. It would be Gentiles. Just When Mary heard that she was the mother of Jesus, she sang the Magna Carta. This is the last one. A Christian should have only one spouse. This is called monotony. We, we need truth stirred up in us. Because we tend to forget. This is why Paul says, Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, is good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's why we, uh, I think it's so important, brothers, to set aside time every day to quiet ourselves in front of God's word and just to hear his voice. We'll be talking about that later in this lesson. But to hear truth from God's word that will counteract the script of the day, the lies of the, of the evil one that tries so hard to squeeze us uh, into his mold. All the distortions, all, all the subtleties of this day. I love this verse. If you're looking for a great verse to commit to memory this week, I would commend to you uh, maybe Hebrews to one. Look at this. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. Not to go through life in, in the busy mode where I'm just kind of skimming on stuff when I'm in autopilot, but to really live in a thoughtful, determined way, living with the truth of God always before me. So Peter says, uh, you need to be reminded. He says you need to be renewed. And then 30 says, verse 15, I will see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. And I, and I love this, this particular uh, nuance here because Peter can surely remember a time when Jesus gathered his own disciples together uh, there in the upper room. Jesus, knowing what was going to happen, Jesus wanting to make sure his disciples 
had hope for the future. And so Jesus tells his disciples about the role of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit, he's going to be your companion. He's going to be your friend. He's going to be your counselor. He's going to be your helper. He's going to guide you, your, your own personal guidance counselor. That's what the Holy Spirit's going to do for you. And this great promise from John 14. The counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in, in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. Jesus, who knows all about the spiritual drift, says you, you need some help. And one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to continually bring to your mind those truths from the Word of God. Madeline Langle, a Christian writer, writes this wonderful little story, this piece about a, a two-and-a-half-year-old girl whose uh, parents uh, had a brand-new baby. Some of you know about this sibling rivalry issue, and these parents tried to do everything possible to make sure that the two-and-a-half-year-old would not feel marginalized, would not feel overlooked. And so they read all the right books, and they did all the right things, and they allowed the, the big sister to hold her little sister and to feed her and nurture her to some extent. And, uh, and I, as I was, I'm reading this story, uh, my mind went back to the first three hours of, uh, of us having our second child, Kyle, in our home. Tyler was about two and a half. We were trying to introduce Tyler, uh, introduce uh, Kyle to, to Tyler. Within the first three hours, Tyler had thrown a golf ball across the room, which hit Kyle right there in the head, big old nut on his head. And unbeknownst to us, he had fed him a nickel. <laughs> Kyle was born six weeks early. He was just a little bit of a kid. And it's uh, kind of a strange thing to find in a newborn's diaper, you know. I think Tyler was thinking that maybe he was his own personal piggy bank. I'm not really sure what the deal was. But uh, this, this uh, two-year-old sister uh, says to the, her parents, uh, I want to see the baby. And the parents say, well, honey, okay, let's go. No, I want to see the baby by myself. No, mommy and daddy really need to go with you. No, I want to see the baby myself. And the parents could tell that she was, she was uh, rather persistent. And they thought they were probably safe because there next to the baby's crib was one of these monitors. So they could listen in and kind of sort out what was going on. So they allowed the big sister to go up and uh, have some time with their little sister. And they're huddled there by the monitor, ready to jump and uh, fix things if anything needs to be fixed. And so they're, they're listening in. And this is what um, the big sister says. She, she, she uchis up close to the crib and whispers to her sister, tell me about God. I'm starting to forget. I just love that that picture of, uh, of, of a child's innocence and desire to know deeply the heart of God. And that's what Peter is trying to do for us, trying to help us understand what God is like. And here's what I know. I know as I look out in this room that some of you uh, have been walking with the Lord longer than I've been alive. And yes, it's true that you always need to be learning and you know, you never master the Christian life. But for you, it's not so much uh, the need to learn new things as it is for you to be reminded of those things that you already need to be 
that you already know to be true. To have those stirred up in you. So Paul writes, verse 15, I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember those things. I'll tell you why, this is why corporate worship is so important. Because like me, you'd go through your week and you kind of just get beaten up by the world and uh, the flesh and, and the devil. And you drag yourself into church and you feel um, like, like a hypocrite because you know some of the thoughts that you thought that week and some of the things that you did. And you just feel joyless and defeated. And then you come into corporate worship. And you lock arms with other believers. And you hear the hymns. And you enter into worship. Here at Second, you know, we enter into that time of, of uh, confession of sin. And in, 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 in a time of silence where we can offer our own individual prayers of confession. I'm really glad those are always silent individual prayers of confession. And then we're told by the worship leader this assurance of divine pardon. That our sins are forgiven. That we're cleansed and restored and holy and pure. And our hope is renewed. And our faith is restored. And we can go back out into the world with a new sense uh, of mission and purpose. We have, I believe, at the end of the day, uh, a memory problem. And to put it succinctly, here's your memory problem. And this memory problem uh, saps your joy and hope probably more than anything else. Your memory problem in the mind, you forget what you're supposed to remember, and you remember what you're supposed to forget. You forget what you're supposed to remember, that God loves you, that he loved you so much that he sent his own son, Jesus, not just to the world, but to you. And that this Jesus went to the cross, took on himself all of your sin, past, present, and future. And in an act of just pure divine grace and mercy, Jesus, who took your sin, gave to you his perfect record. So that now when God sees you, he only sees the perfect record of his son. Jesus, who was crucified and was dead and was buried and was raised again and ascended into heaven, treasures you and loves you. We forget that stuff. We forget what we're supposed to remember. And, and we remember what we're supposed to forget, which is a list of all of our sins, all of our failures, all those times that we have fallen short of being the kind of people that we're supposed to be. We forget verses like this great one in Isaiah 43:25. I am he, God says, I am he who, who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Let me tell you what I've seen in just 20 or so years of pastoral ministry, counseling, really probably thousands of different people, that I think there are some, there are some people who have determined, please get this, that they're going to do a better job of remembering their sin than God himself does. I just want to say this in the kindest way I know how. Kindest way I know how. Do you know how arrogant that is? That you would have a higher standard of keeping track of your sin than God himself does? 
to determine that uh, for, for whatever reason you're, you're not worthy of the death and forgiveness offered by Jesus Christ. You and I, in order to maintain spiritual resiliency, have got to learn to let that go. Dallas Willard offers this prayer on a regular basis. Will you help me, Holy Spirit, to overcome my yesterdays? Yesterday's mistakes, yesterday's failures, yesterday's inadequacy and disappointment. To confess it, to make right those things I need to make right, to learn those things I need to learn, to, um, to appropriate those biblical truths that I need to appropriate, and then learn to move on. Paul said, says it this way, I forget what is behind, and I press on to what? To what is ahead. That's the gospel, the good news. Peter says, hold on to what you've learned. Hold on to it. And then secondly, hold on to what has been seen and heard. Like the Apostle Paul, Peter was regularly attacked for his apostolic role. And the language he uses here reflects that. We did not come, verse 16, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we were told about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is what he was being accused of. That Peter and the other apostles were coming up with some kind of trickery or manipulation in order to get people to follow them. There were teachers who uh, exaggerated their stories uh, in some ways to showcase their, um, their, their own uh, deception and wickedness. And it worked then just like it works today. That the, the primary way that you can use trickery and get other people to believe you and follow you is just to get an eyewitness who will tell a story of how much you've helped them. And maybe like me, some of you in this room have a hard time sleeping and you find yourself up at night doing a little channel surfing and you know that's how the infomercials work. And you can go through, you can find a machine that will create rock-hard abs or find a product that will get hair you don't want to grow in certain places to go away and some other potion that will grow hair where you want it to grow and uh, things, you know, knives that will cut through brick but never break and will stay strong and ovens and all sorts of cleaners and whatever. And, and all these infomercial people, here's what they know. In order to get people to believe it, you need a personal testimony, a firsthand account. So they find somebody, they throw them a couple hundred bucks, and they, and they, they follow the script that, was, that goes on now. It was going on in Peter's day. And just as a side note, I'll just say how much it, it grieves me to see the way that some TV preachers have adopted the same strategy. And they will have all sorts of testimonies that will uh, attribute power and special ability to them. If you just buy this, then, you know, and put your hand on this place on the TV and you'll be healed and restored. But if you really want, if you really want to be healed, then you need this, this magic anointing oil, 1995. And it's amazing to me in our day how these how these TV preachers uh, tragically will prey on uneducated believers with this trickery and bankroll their lavish lifestyles, ironically 
trying to get people to follow a Jesus who said of himself, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. We have a word for that in our day. It's called homelessness. And the irony in our day, with the trickery and manipulation of some of the TV preachers in our day, trying to, trying to get us to believe in a Jesus who is so unlike them in the way that they live their lives. Peter, Peter says, that's not how I came to you. I came declaring the glorious sight, what I had seen. Uh, Peter was an eyewitness to Christ's splendor, his majesty, the glorious sight and sound that Peter, James, and John witnessed at the Mount of Transfiguration. And you can read more about that in Matthew 17, as Jesus allows Peter, James, and John to get a glimpse of him in his glorified state. Let me just read a few uh a few words here from Matthew 17 about what they saw. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Every time I read that verse, I wonder, what do you think they were talking about? Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Well, maybe when we get to heaven... There'll be like a DVD collection or something where we can go back and get some reruns on this. I don't know what they were talking. Here's my hunch. That Moses and Elijah came to communicate to Jesus the same message that thundered from heaven. Because it wasn't Peter, James, and John. John, it wasn't just that they saw this amazing sight. They quite literally heard the voice of God from heaven. And like like the moment at Jesus' own baptism, when the heavens were open and the Spirit of God descended like a dove, like that moment, God speaks from heaven and says, This is my Son, whom I love. In Him I am well pleased. And in the Gospel account, in Matthew's Gospel, there's one additional comment made at the Battle of Transfiguration. After God says that, he makes this comment. Listen to him. Listen to him. Know what he's saying to you is true. The glorious sight, the glorious sound. And again, we've, we've noted in our, in our study that here's Peter, probably at the end of, the, uh, end of his life, probably in his, in his 80s, along with the other, other apostles, Peter had suff, suffered tremendous hardship in his ministry. And like Paul, he was beaten and stoned and imprisoned and harassed in every conceivable way. And now toward the end of his life, his, his executioners are coming his way. And all he has to do in order to call them off is to say something like this. It was all a scam. The story of Jesus that he... That he uh, healed people and that he walked on the water, that he raised Lazarus, that he turned water into wine, that he was dead and buried and raised again. It was all a lie. Follow me. I'll take you to where we buried his body. Just don't torture me. Just don't kill me. That's all that Peter would have had to say. And his executioners would have left him alone. 
but he couldn't do it. Instead, he reports, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it. We were there. We felt the ground shake as the voice came from heaven, offering this incredible declaration. And not only would he uh, refuse to retract his testimony, not only that, but because of his devotion and love for Jesus and his majesty, his goodness, his perfection, Peter actually makes a request of those very executioners. Not only did he say no, not only did he uh, refuse to refute the message, but he asks his executioners to execute him upside down because he didn't feel that he was worthy to be killed in the same way as his own master and Lord. We saw it with our own eyes. We heard it with our own ears. Jesus was who he claimed to be. He did what we claimed he did. He is the true incarnate one and only Son of God, the Savior. Why does that matter? I think it matters for this reason. Because every one of us in this room, from time to time, experience what uh, philosophers will call the dark night of the soul. And you read your Bible, and this, this thought turns around in your mind, you know, is this really true? I mean, I've, I've devoted myself so much to this teaching. This happened so long ago. And it's easy to let that doubt creep in and lead you away from true belief. Or maybe you're, you're writing uh, a kingdom check. You're writing a check that's going to support some kingdom enterprise. And in order to write that check, you're going to have to determine to do without some things. And so it hurts. And you write that check and you wonder, is this worth it? Am I really investing in something that is transcendent and eternal and real? We all have those dark nights of the soul. And the voice of Peter and the voice of the prophets and the voice of the apostles and all the church Fathers and mothers throughout the ages would ring out in unison, it's worth it, it's worth it, it's worth it, it's true. That Peter and the disciples would willingly give up their own lives in order to stand behind their testimony of the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe it. Surrender your life to it. Embrace it wholly. We've got to hold on to what we've learned. Hold on to what has been seen and heard. And then finally, hold on to what has been recorded. The accomplishments of the Word of God. And how it really does shine in the midst of the darkness. And I think of stories like, you know, the story of, of the life of Corey Tin Boom who was, you know, brutalized and with her sister in prison in a, in a Nazi concentration camp. And her most treasured possession was her Bible. And how she smuggled that and hid that and kept it close to her. And how the Bible for her was like food. It was wor- like a word of life, like air for her. And how it guided her day and gave her hope. I think about that, and then I think about, I think about the amount of Bibles that I have collected over the years. 
in my study here at church or at the house. I actually counted them yesterday. Nineteen. Many different translations. Nineteen Bibles. Here's the deal. A lot of them have dust on them. A lot of them haven't been opened in a long time. And I think how easy it is for us to have all this truth right at the end of our fingertips and yet never really access it. Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word, O God, is like a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Now think about the darkness and the struggle that so many of us in this room have. Struggle in relationships, struggle in our own character and moral life, struggle in business, struggle in ministry, and how we desperately need the illuminating power of God's Word to give us vision and guidance. And yet that book remains closed or on a shelf and really underutilized. Barna, in a recent study, says that 92% of Americans own at least one Bible. The average household has three. Two-thirds of Americans say it holds the answers to the basic questions of life. The next president will put uh, his or her hand on a Bible and swear and take their presidential oath. Yet fewer than half of Americans, fewer than half, can name the first book of the Bible. One-third know, uh, one-third don't know who, who delivered the Sermon on the Mount. One-fourth don't know what Easter really is, really is and what it's about. All kind of statistics. Years ago, it was the craze, the WWJD bracelets. What would Jesus do? There's nothing wrong with that question. It's a good question. But here's what, here's what we learned during that campaign. That as people asked the, question, asked the question in different life situations, what would Jesus do? They came up short. Because at the end of the day, they didn't know what Jesus would do. Because they hadn't really spent much time with Jesus. Hadn't much spent much, much time in his word. One scholar put it this way. The Bible remains the best-selling but least read book ever written. And so what I want to do in just a few minutes that we have is talk about how the light of God's truth can dispel the darkness in your life and mine. Just some real practical steps about entering into um, a, a time, a regular time of meeting with God and harvesting uh, these rich truths. I would encourage you to add this uh, to, your, to your outline. Here's the first one. As you go to read the Bible first... Stop and be quiet for at least a minute. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. Be still. I think a lot of us would have to admit that we have a, a severe case of adult ADD. And for us to sit for 60 seconds feels like an hour. But just be still. Declutter your mind. Ask God, secondly, ask God to meet you in your Bible reading. 
invite him into that time of devotion. Settle your mind, number one. Two, invite God into that Bible reading moment. And then third, I'm just going to put it this way. Learn to read the Bible with a repentant spirit. I have a friend who, um, when he reads the Bible, reads the Bible while on his knees. Because he says, for me, that's symbolic of me placing myself under the authority of God's word. The, The people that Jesus had the most difficulty with in his earthly ministry were the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And the, the biggest problem he had with them was they were puffed up and arrogant. Their hearts were hard. And if they had learned to engage in the truth of God in a repentant way, none of that would have happened. Next thing. And this is going to strike some of you as, as sort of odd, but stay with me on this, would you? Don't cover mass quantities of your Bible in one sitting. Say, well, wait a minute, Rock, what are you saying? Here's what I'm saying. Uh, Let me read this quote because I think it it will be helpful. Uh, One author put it like this. If you read quickly, it will benefit you little. You will be like a bee that merely skims the surface of a flower but never drinks in its nectar. Take one section of the Bible and just learn to read it and meditate on it, to take it in. Dallas Willard uh, says it this way, and he's being um, a little sarcastic, but I think this is helpful. You may have been told that it is good to read the Bible through every year and that you can ensure this by reading so many verses per day from the Old and New Testament. If you do this, and again, he's being a little cynical here. If you do this, you may enjoy the reputation of one who reads the Bible through every year. And you may congratulate yourself on your accomplishment. But will you thereby become more like Christ and more filled with the life of God? He says, it's a proven fact that many who read the Bible in this way, like taking medicine or exercising on a schedule, do not advance spiritually. Better in one year to have ten good verses transferred into the substance of our lives than have every word of the Bible flashed before our eyes. All right, let me just say this. Reading the Bible through is a very good thing. Studying the Bible, looking at history and the context and some some of the ways that various verses interact with, that's all very important. But what is being discussed here is a way of reading the Bible where you meditate on its truth. I'll just tell you from my own experience, as as a new believer, somebody told me that it was a good idea to read a psalm a day. That was the practice of Martin Luther. And for him, the psalms were like his own prayer book. And so I was told that's a good idea. And so I determined that I would read a psalm every day. And sometimes if I knew the next day was going to be really busy, I'd I'd read two psalms because I knew the following day I wouldn't be able to read a psalm. And in my mind, I really, this was my, this is my thought, um, that God is up in heaven and he has this chart 
150 Psalms, Rocky Anthony. And every time I read, check, check, check. In the same time in my life, I was trying to keep a journal. And I really did this. Some of you can relate to this. Some of you uh, in hearing this will think I'm completely wacko. But I, I thought it was important to have an entry in my journal every day. And I'd miss some days, but I would go back to those days that I missed and fill them out as if I had filled them out on, the de- on that date. As if God wouldn't know that. As if it mattered. Because nobody else looked at the journal besides me in the first place. We have all these wacky ideas about what God wants. Here's, here's the thrust of this point. That it is better to get the Psalms through me than for me to get through the Psalms. And maybe it's just reading until you feel like the Holy Spirit connects you to a truth of Scripture and you stop and you begin to meditate on it. And the last thing I'll say on this particular point is that you carry that truth with you throughout the day. And maybe for you it's, it's a phrase of Scripture. Maybe it's some imagery from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the seat of mockers, uh, or sit in the seat of mockers. His delight will be in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Where you just take a truth from God's word and you carry it with you. And you ask God to reform and reshape your mind and heart around that particular truth. Take a minute to settle your harried heart. Invite God to speak to you in the Bible reading. Don't cover mass quantities of the Bible, but listen for the Spirit of God to really tune you into one truth and then take that truth and carry it with you throughout the day that His light will shine in every dark corner of our lives. Just let me just touch on this last point about its author. Because really what what, uh, Peter is is uh, speaking to is what theologians will call, please get this, uh, the doctrine of organic revelation, which is to say that when God raised up these various scripture writers, he deployed their background, their education, their life experiences, their culture, their personality, and God used all of that to communicate his truth through them. And so, as Peter says, This is not something, the scripture we hold in our hands, it's not something that was derived by men. But it's something that God did through men. Where he used them as vessels to communicate his his truth. Why does that matter for us today? Let me just give you a word of encouragement. Because you've got some people in your life right now who, who desperately need to hear about the good news of Jesus. But they'll only receive it if it's communicated to them by somebody like you. Somebody with your personality, somebody with your relationship, your background. Why do we have four Gospels? They all tell the same story. It's because each of the Gospels has its own little nuance. And here's the good news as we leave, that God has formed me and formed you in such a way that you are you are better able to communicate the truth of his word to somebody in your life better than anybody at your table this morning, better than this preacher. And so this word that we hold in our hands, we know that it's valid, it's accurate, it's been preserved. Words of life that dispel whatever darkness there is. 
We have a lot to give thanks for. We have a lot to remember. And Peter is telling us that one of the great gifts that God has given to us through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is one who will lead us into all truth and remind us of everything that has been said. Let's go with that confidence. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for uh, your sustaining work in your church. Uh, We would confess before you this morning that we're a forgetful bunch. We forget trivial things that really don't matter all that much at the end of the day, but we also forget things that are of ultimate importance, like where we are in our relationship with you. Please settle that issue in the hearts of these men and to anyone listening to this message, that they would have that confidence of their calling and their election. We thank you, Lord, for the eyewitness account that you gave to Peter that allows us to hear that and to know that this Bible that we hold in our hands is accurate, it's been preserved by you, that it it is for us a lamp in the midst of the darkness. Help us to open it and to hear these words of life and to put them into action. And then, God, send us out as, uh, as your gospel heralds today, knowing that you've placed people in our lives who need to hear the gospel and will only hear it from somebody like us. And so send us out as we uh, try to uh, incarnate the good news of Jesus in this dark world. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace. Have a great day, brothers.